Good afternoon, everybody. This is Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good afternoon. Good to see you. Good to have you uh, on our on our little show here. Um, before we get started, Jeff, I'm just curious. Uh, how are you doing personally? Where are you? And uh, how is uh, life uh, treating you? What do you do to get uh, to stay healthy and sane? Well, I guess we got uh, exiled out of uh, New York City somewhere around March 13th, and uh, we, along with many others, uh, left for the suburbs and uh, I'm out on the eastern end of Long Island and uh, my family's here. And uh, I guess if, uh, if I had to be anywhere, this is a pretty good place to have to camp out. Um, and you know, there are some positive things out of all this. You do get to spend some time with your kids and family, uh, time that we don't always get to do. So um, there, there, is, there is a positive. Um, in terms of my schedule, um, basically, you know, I try to, uh, I'm pretty active in general, so I try to get a workout in almost every morning. And, uh, and, then, and then it's literally uh, morning till night on, on Zoom calls, something we now find ourselves all, uh, all too familiar with. Um, you know, I personally, I had been on WebEx and Zoom, obviously, prior uh, for meetings, but never to have been so active in originating and calling and putting this all together. So I guess we're all getting used to um, technology a little bit, but uh, personally, I'd prefer to meet in person and shake hands and say hello to everyone and get a hug in now and then. Um, but uh, I guess we're all getting used to the new reality. Do you subscribe to the philosophy that uh, this uh, temporary situation will accelerate a trend, but that the trend is towards less travel <coughs> and more virtual meetings like this in general? Um, I got asked that question quite a bit. I, I mean, I, I, I think th there's obviously two camps on this, right? Um, you, you know, one camp is we're never going to need office space or significantly less office space as a result because now everyone's Zooming all day long. Um, and the other camp is this is actually a pretty terrible way to conduct business, um, inefficient, uh, no water cooler talks, uh, no brainstorming, no creativity, and lots of distractions. I find myself in, in the latter. Um, I really think business is conducted much better in person. I think socialization is a big part of it. Uh, creativity comes out, you know, in our office, creativity comes out after eight o'clock in the conference room around pizza. Um, and so I do think um, we're, we're missing, we're really missing that part of, of the creative process. Um, I do think, however, so I, I, I personally think that uh, people want to get back to the office. I know my team members want to get back to the office. And I know from speaking to our tenants um, that they want to get back to the office. Interestingly, we have had uh, four very large tenants that we are in various stages of uh, building out for them, them building out um, to occupy space that have approached us basically saying they can't deliver the space that they were planning to deliver as dense as they were planning to be. Um, in the midst of this and you know, how can they get more space? So that has been one side of, of it. And the other side is obviously, uh, you know, some people are just comfortable with this and people like working at home and they need less space. And quite honestly, after the economic impact of this, they may not be able to afford the same amount of space that they had before. So there are two contrary views. I, I don't think one's, I don't think you're gonna get a wholesale one way or the other. I think you'll have a combination of, of the two. And I think, you know, the larger companies that um, have the balance sheet and liquidity to do it 
we'll probably wind up taking you know more space and making that environment um, even more comfortable for their And, but, and, and just, I guess, to answer the second part of your question, um, I do think, however, having said everything I just said, um, I think that, you know, I, I was always one to jump on a plane for a one hour meeting, even, you know, across the country if necessary, and not really think twice about it. And I, I will I will say, you know, the ease of this and, and the ability to jump on this would make me second guess a trip like that certainly in, 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 in pre-vaccine world, but even in, in post, I think that people are getting uh, more comfortable with this and you know, if it avoids a day trip and you could really do this. So the impact I think is less commercial office, but more um, you know, certainly airline industry and as it relates to real estate um, hospitality, I think um, there could be a permanent shift from there. I think so too. I think that you know, after 9-11, we had sort of a quantum leap change, not not yeah. as severe or as drastic as people thought to begin with in the middle of the 9-11, you know, confusion and chaos, but it settled into a new normal, which was different than the prior normal. Probably the same thing here, don't you think? Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. So uh, at the risk that somebody on this uh, listening to this doesn't know who related companies is, would you mind giving us a one or two minute overview of what you do, the scope and scale of related? Sure. Um, so we have lots of different companies, but at its heart, we're a, a real estate uh, development company or a true operator um, in the sense that you often refer to operators and investors. Um, so what that means is uh, we do everything that touches the real estate in-house. We have about 4,000 employees across the United States. Um, we do everything from acquisition, finance, construction, design, sales, marketing, leasing, and as you know, um, have a, a separate funds management business um, as well. And, um, you know, across the country, we're, we are based in New York City. We have offices in Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Boston, DC, all the kind of major urban markets. And we've been very active in residential. Um, the start was actually in affordable housing, still a very, very large and and uh, important and increasingly more important part of our business. Um, but, but then market rate housing and for sale housing and office hotels and really over time, the, the expertise has moved into uh, high rise urban mixed use environments and uh, people are, are generally familiar with us for our work at Time Warner Center in New York City, uh, soon to be renamed Deutsche Bank Center. Um, the Hudson Yards um, on the west side of Manhattan, which ultimately will be about 20 million square feet of development, the largest uh, real estate development ever done in the United States. And then we have similar large-scale projects, one out on the west, just entitled for about 13 million square feet. Arguably today, probably one of the best pieces of real estate, you know, given its location in the middle of Silicon Valley and, and Apple and Facebook and Google surrounding it, you know, those companies all, um, you know, as a result of what's going on, probably becoming even stronger than they were before and more in need of space and, and, and growth uh, in those markets. So uh, that's really where, where we've, we've grown the business. And then um, about a decade ago, as you know, we set up a funds management division um, where we manage close to $8 billion of institutional third-party capital um, in, in virtually every aspect of the real estate industry, 
Uh, we have equity funds, debt funds, separate accounts, a big focus on multifamily. Um, and interestingly, we're just finishing up a fundraise for our third equity fund. Um, and we've always really viewed that as a counter cyclical business to the development business. Um, and, and so fortunately in, in, in that business today, uh, we have lots of dry powder. Um, and I think that um, there's gonna be a lot of things to invest in uh, post, the, post this crisis. They're also involved with things beyond real estate. Uh, can you describe <clears> that? <throat> yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, a couple other, I guess, things in the, in the real estate side. We've also um, vertically integrated along the way. So we own a um, uh, mechanical engineering company. Uh, it was a public company. We took private called KSW. Uh, so we do our own work in our buildings and obviously for third parties. Uh, we own a, uh, a glass curtain wall manufacturing facility that we started um, in Pennsylvania that produces curtain wall again for us and, and for third parties. So we, we have really uh, vertically integrated along the way. We have construction businesses um, and we have invested with many of our tenants. Uh, we own uh, some restaurants that occupy spaces within our, in our buildings. And, um, and then along the way, we invested in our uh, a majority owner in Equinox Fitness Clubs um, and SoulCycle and Blink, um, and they both act as, as tenant as well as the investment that we uh, made in that company. So a um, couple, yeah, couple yeah. different businesses. Yes, a few, uh, but, but it gives you a terrific view of, uh, of, of the world. And uh, I'm curious about how has COVID-19 affected, uh, you know, the various aspects of it, which, which have proven to be more resilient, which have proven to be right. more susceptible to uh, the shock. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's interesting as you think about events like this, you know, you, you think over time that you've built diversified businesses, um, so including, you know, uh, Steve Ross, our, our founder, who owns the Miami Dolphins. Um, and you've diversified risk and capital um, but you realize they are very much intertwined when, when something like this happens. And so um, if you think about our real estate businesses first, um, you know, we are diversified by asset type. And so we have office and, and, and uh, residential and retail and hotels. Um, and so there it actually did help because our, our office portfolio is held up uh, you know, very strong. Uh, really it's, it's, high quality um, class A buildings with credit tenants. And, you know, we have collected virtually all of our rents uh, to date and, and I don't really uh, anticipate any problems in that portfolio. Um, and in our residential, um, we break into two categories. So basically effectively market rate there, some of them are 80 twenties, uh, but effectively market rate buildings in the urban markets at a probably higher, certainly higher than average price point, a higher demographic, and so most of those people have kept their jobs or have savings and have continued to pay rent throughout the crisis. Uh, we're averaging about 92% in collections um, during this period of time. 92% of what? 92% of, of, of scheduled rents. Gotcha, thank um, you. So um, actually that's this month, it was slightly higher last month. So still you know, fairly strong and interestingly, the majority of the, the non-payers are, are less individuals, they're more corporate housing units. Um, so that was an, another interesting learning along the way. Um, and then 
And then the other uh, portfolio we, we have is in our affordable housing portfolio, which is obviously much more affected. Um, you know, fortunately, a good part of that portfolio receives, the, the residents receive government assistance of, some, of one type of another, uh, either through, through city or federal government Section 8 certificates. And so um, that government assistance has allowed uh, those tenants, uh, residents, even those that, that have lost their jobs to be able to continue to pay rent. And in the affordable, non-assisted units is where we probably have the largest uh, gap in, in collections and understandably so. And, and, and it's actually, that's where, you know, we have really stepped in and tried to help our tenants and kind of, you know, work through uh, payment plans or, or whatever it is that they need because, you know, this is obviously nobody's fault and we got to kind of do the right thing everywhere. Um, so, but I would say overall commercial, residential, you know, strong. Um, then obviously you move to retail, which has been uh, significantly impacted. Um, you know, we have retail, again, almost in two categories, large scale um, in New York City, Hudson Yards retail, almost a million square feet anchored by now bankrupt Neiman Marcus um, and uh, time. We do own a, a, a large amount of um, you know, what we call big box retail in the boroughs of uh, the cities. And interestingly, the big box centers have held up really well because they are staple goods. Uh, a large majority of those stores are open, um, whether they're grocers, uh, Home Depot, Costco, Target, all open, considered essential business and, and, and paying rent. Um, so we've, we've had that um, anchor on the retail side for us. But if you look at kind of the urban in-city retail, uh, which is, is not dissimilar to uh, mall tenants, um, they're just you know, not paying and I'm not sure um, what the survival rate is for these retailers. I think um, there will be a significant change coming out of this just as we talked in the hospitality sector. I think you'll see a new, a new world uh, post-COVID for retail um, and a new set of retailers, unfortunately. And, and again, I mean, unfortunately, the hardest hit are the smaller, uh, smaller retailers and restaurants um, in particular, you know, where you have a lot of sole proprietors and chefs that have gotten into the business. And, um, you know, you can just see their life savings, you know, being um, lost in this. And it's really a, you know, terrible situation. I was on a call this morning and, you know, we're, we're again, we're doing what we can, um, you know, including moving uh, those types of tenants to a percentage rent only and abatements and so on. And the problem is, you know, even at effectively no rent or percentage rent, um, if, if the reopening includes things like 30% occupancy or even 50% occupancy, there's really, there, it was a low margin business to begin with. Um, and so the survival rate there, I'm not sure is gonna be too great. It's gonna be years before that segment uh, re-finds re, re its footings. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right. Uh, what about lenders and investors? Uh, all this obviously is creating a lot of uh, concern, if not uh, distress uh, on their part. And how, what are you hearing from them? What are they telling you? How are your relationships with them? Uh, uh, and I'm not talking about new investors, but rather the, the, the folks that have uh, trusted you with the money over the years, which is a considerable number of players and considerable amount of money. Right. Um, so I'll start with the banks first. Um, you know, one of the things 
we did the very first thing, and I could you know, go through all the things we did, but um, one of the, in the top of the list were communicating with all of our um, lenders and investors and reaching out to all of our banks, you know, directly. And even if we're just checking in and telling them we're still here, um, we did that. Um, I would say this, this feels, you know, I've been through four of these now, right, as of, as of you. Um, everyone was mad, right? We, we all wanted to kill each other last time, right? Everyone was yelling, everyone was screaming. And I, I just don't think, I, I think there's a very different approach um, this time. I think everyone realizes nobody caused this. Uh, the banks are in much stronger positions than they were back then. The developers are are much stronger and less levered than last time. Um, so there, there has been a willingness uh, to date, and I'm I'm not sure that holds. But to date, there's been a a willingness to cooperate, um, and almost all the banks universally across the board, to the extent that that there are real shortfalls in cash flow, particularly around hotels and retail, have immediately just sent uh, back. Uh, forbearance agreements to the extent necessary, you know, for whatever the period, 60 or 90, 90 days and, and tacked on to the back, which has been helpful for things that are closed, you know, like retail centers and, and hotels. Uh, Fannie Mae, as you know, and Freddie um, both immediately announced uh, forbearance uh, for apartments that, um, that needed it. Um, you know, we fortunately haven't because of all the reasons we just talked about needed to, to do any of that. Um, you know, I think the more difficult situation has been um, a lot of the CMBS uh, loans, and because there's the process of communicating, there's nobody to communicate to. Um, you know, as I said, the very first thing we picked up the phone and talked to our lenders. Well, there's no phone, there's no one to talk to at, at in CMBS world, and so all you do is you send a letter, you get transferred to a special servicer, you know, in a a, a nondescript office building in Dallas, and XYZ person answers the phone with your case number, you know, 5721. And um, that's, it's, I mean, so we have, we have had no success at all uh, doing anything with any CMBS loans. And so, I mean, you know, fortunately that's a small part of, of kind of our world, but I can tell you from speaking to others in the industry, that's going to be a big problem because many hotels, many retail centers are financed with CMBS and, um, you know, to the extent that there's not cooperation um, because of the inefficiencies of that system, it's going to break down. And I think, you know, we're going to find as an industry um, a huge amount of commercial uh, mortgage defaults, you know, around those two asset classes with not a clear path to fix it. Um, so anyway, that's been that's been troubling. And I, I think that's that could get worse. You know, with regard to our investors, you know, um, whether it's in development deals or in our funds, um, same thing. We have reached out, and um, I would say the first couple of weeks, uh, the response from investors was, you know, they're overwhelmed. They're doing kind of their own inventory, trying to figure out where the fires are. Um, they don't always know what's happening at the fund level, whether you know, maybe some some investor uh, fund managers had repo financing or whatever it might be that that is really a fire beyond just decline in asset value. Um, you know, so we were quick to alert everyone that we didn't have any of those fires. And I think um, after you know the first couple of weeks when it, um, investors got past that stage of kind of checking the inventory, 
you know, they went to, well, what does my portfolio look like from an allocation perspective with the new valuations? And, and after they kind of figured all that out, it really, um, some investors, um, you know, and, and obviously those are, uh, have been long-term partners of ours, um, have reached out and said, okay, you know, what, how are we going to, what are we going to do in this environment? Um, you know, are there opportunities uh, for us to deploy capital um, in, a, in a rational way, given what's going on? Um, and so that, you know, was very encouraging to hear from investors, um, you know, that, that have capital and have trust. And, and that's really where, you know, you have a long-term re relationship and, you know, people ask, you know, people calling just to see how we're doing, just like as we're calling. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to hear um, and people are, seem to be very understanding of the situation. Again, you know, unlike the last go round where there was a lot, a lot of finger pointing, I don't think um, at the moment uh, there, there's been less of that. Now, you know, as this goes on and, you know, the potential for real defaults past forbearance and the potential for recognized losses instead of just markdowns starts to occur, my guess is people start to get frustrated and, you know, the, the, the other side of this comes out. Um, you know, so much of what, you know, we can talk about really depends upon, you know, how we get back to work, when we get back to work, and, you know, how soon we can get to some sense of normalcy. Um, and, and I think that'll really determine, uh, you know, how all those relationships you right. know, work themselves out. Well, so much to, to follow through on, on, on that last uh, few minutes of, of, of your uh, discussion, but let's kind of go back to investors and lenders and the relationship with them. So far, it sounds like no one has either um, yanked the chain or um, uh, on your portfolio. Have you seen any uh, dislocations as a result of this on the outside? In other words, everything you described is kind of like defensive strategies, kind of protecting the house, right. depending what's going on. What about the offensive side? I mean, the the, the only negative, the real negative um, that that you know I've heard throughout the industry occurring yet has been the repo lenders, uh, primarily uh, on the mortgage rates. Um, you know, those that either own securities um, that were pledged and the uh, trade uh, in, in the funds. Uh, where um, <clears throat> there was a mortgage rate that had repo financing on um, some Freddie Mac B pieces, as as you know, and and uh, we were able to purchase uh, a big pool of those Freddie Mac bonds uh, very quickly because I mean we had been we had been buying this product for years and years, and we we were one of the early investors and very familiar with how to underwrite um, and and understand the portfolios. And so we were able to jump in and simultaneous with the repo lender uh, taking that pool back, we were able to purchase direct from the repo lender. And, you know, we had, when we had started, when the program first started, we were one of the first buyers and we used to buy at roughly 14, 15% returns. And uh, originally Freddie only wanted true operators in there because they wanted to make sure if you ever had to, take over a portfolio that they, they had someone who knew how to do that. And ultimately over time, they, they were more financial buyers led into that system. And those 14%, 15% returns came down to, I think the last trades were probably in the eight or nine. And we had stopped buying probably around 11. And uh, we were able to buy this pool back at the, at the 14, or maybe even a little more, you know, level. So 
you know, we thought that was a, a great trade for us. And, and, uh, but, but it, it, I haven't seen a lot of trades, quite honestly. I think most people are watching, you know, they've gotten past the defensive mode. And, and I think most people are just sitting and watching right now. There's, there's, I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but I, I really haven't heard of any physical asset trades happening at all. I think the markets are just, just frozen. There's no financing or very little. And so um, I think it's going to be a while until, until you see, until you see that happen. And probably, you know, we just talked about all these forbearances, so nobody's going to do anything, you know, at least until 90 days when those forbearances expire. And then depending on what the banks do at that point, whether or not there's, that could create some, some new opportunities. So when the music stopped, you had a pipeline of things you're working on, development, construction, investment, uh, dispositions, et cetera. Uh, what happened to the pipeline since then? So that's where um, that probably had the biggest impact in our business right away. Um, so, you know, if you just think about, and I'm just talking about our development business first, if you think about that business model, um, what we do is we use our balance sheet cash to uh, buy land, tie up sites, uh, get entitlements, uh, hire architects and engineers, and essentially uh, put, put a project in a pretty bow. And, uh, and then we bring in third-party capital, equity, and debt investors. And, and we, uh, all that balance sheet capital that we had used in pre-development gets returned essentially at a construction loan closing. And then we, that model is very dependent upon these capital market takeouts. Um, and so, um, and that's where our greatest use of liquidity occurs. And so when you have a situation like we're in now where, the use of liquidity continues and the capital market takeout goes away, you've got a, you've got a real problem. And so, you know, we immediately cut back all discretionary spending on the pre-development side and uh, conserved, you know, cap conserving capital from a liquidity perspective. And we will continue that in, until, you know, we are comfortable that once again, there's, there are capital market takeouts. So that has been, you know, very disruptive in terms of the growth part of our business and, you know, again, hopefully uh, this doesn't go for extended periods of time and we can get back to some level of normalcy. And I will say as part of that uh, as well is, is us taking those things that haven't started and reanalyzing each one of those business plans because some of them may involve you know, multiple hotels or whatever it might be that just might not be appropriate given the new landscape. And so combination of, uh, say, conserving liquidity and Reevaluating business plans. Um, you know, on the on on existing deals, things that are under construction, for the most part, anything we have under construction is fully capitalized and and you know has a, a business plan that's moving forward and it continues to move forward. Um, in in most cases, in, in well, in some cities we're able to continue to build. In other cities, we've been shut down for periods of time. Um, you know, I think construction will be one of the very first things to return. And so, you know, we're hopeful to get uh, whatever is stopped back on track quickly. And I don't really expect any, any problems for those things that are underway. In terms of um, asset sales, I mean, just, you know, it's all timing. No one knew where this was going to happen, right? So uh, we had two big uh, trades that were about to happen, one apartment building, one hotel. Um, it looks like uh, one of them is going to go forward and one's not. So, so you know, it's just, it, we've, it's just uh, all timing. At full price? 
the apartment deal is going to go through effectively at full price, um, and the hotel is, is on hold for now. Yeah, we've seen a few uh, a few deals that uh, uh, were in the pipeline that uh, did not get canceled, uh, and there's still conversations going on about retrading, but there's a retrading going on, and uh, we'll see whether the sellers and the buyers can agree. But it seems like the bid ask is somewhere between five and fifteen percent below the contract price, and uh, the question is, can they close that gap and meet in the middle at ten percent or something like that, or or not? Right. So I, I, it, it just depends also where people were in the process, whether deposits were down. I mean, we had uh, last week that was under contract with a very large deposit to a uh, pension fund purchaser. And, um, you know, they called asking for some time because their financing was pulled. And so we gave them more time and then they closed it at the full price. You know, it was a month later, but <clears throat> so we, we were able to get that done. Yeah. Interesting. What, uh, when, when you look at um, <clears throat> the current environment, it uh, seems to me that a, a company like Related, 4,000 employees, the, the burn rate is quite high. And uh, that burn rate is covered at least in part by fees coming in, construction, development fees, et cetera. Uh, when things begin to either shut down or, or get stretched out over time, it could create stress. How are you set up for that? What are you doing about managing that stress? And where, where do you go from here? So, you know, we, we um, you know, once this happened, you know, we, we kind of did, you know, bits and pieces of what we've talked about already. You know, one, really to make sure our employees were safe and we knew where they were and that their families were okay. And if anyone needed assistance, that we were there for them. And, you know, that was, that was important. We spent a lot of time um, doing that. <clears throat> and then, and then, going back and kind of doing our own inventory like we talked and and so going through every single project and the pre-development spending and in each one of our divisions and making sure that there was proper liquidity there we did that um, and and we have also made a commitment to our employees um, that you know we're we're going to keep everyone employed throughout this period of time um, you know we don't we don't think this is a time when you leave kind of dedicated employees uh, hanging and um, so we, we have done that and there's no question, you know, we are incurring costs and, and using liquidity to do that. Uh, but I think it's the right thing to do long term for the business. You know, at the end of the day, when we get through this and we reevaluate uh, the business, um, my guess is we will have areas of the company that are growing, um, you know, as we talked about the funds that are now, you know, again, just fortuitous timing that have lots of liquidity in the funds. and probably lots of growth opportunities. Um, so we'll probably move more people into that area. Um, and people that are on our existing developments are gonna continue doing what they're doing. And we might have some canceled uh, or delayed new construction starts. And ultimately we're gonna have to right size, uh, we're gonna have to right size the business. And so, you know, it's, it's not clear yet what that's gonna look like, but um, that might be something that happens down the road. So let's start looking out a little bit. I wonder what is your point of view about um, the next six to 12 months? What happens when with respect to uh, restarting your business and restarting your projects given the virus and the economy? I think that the, the dividing line is not necessarily an arbitrary six to 12 months. It's, it's, pre-vaccine and post-vaccine, because I think that's, and so I don't know if that's 
12 months or 18 months or, or some other time. But I think those are the two timelines that I would divide it into. I think pre-vaccine, we're going to be in a, you know, a very strange uh, a new world in terms of every type of interaction that we have, in terms of going to the office, in terms of commuting, in terms of going to restaurants and sporting events where we may not go to, um, and concerts and anything like that. Um, you know, obviously we're all going to be wearing uh, masks and we're going to uh, enter into our office buildings with temperature checks and uh, cleaning protocols and social distancing and elevators that you don't press buttons and, you know, two or four people in the elevator. And, you know, all these things are going to have a huge impact on our daily lives. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, and obviously less travel, uh, we talked about. Um, and so, you know, I think people in the pre in the pre vaccine period uh, will will have this period of time when they are partially back to office and partially not. Um, and um, so, I, I, I mean, I don't I, I don't see a a real return to normalcy in that period. And then, you know, I we're all hopeful that there is a vaccine, um, and you know that's going to take some time to not just find it create it but then distribute it to seven billion people around the world i don't even know how you manufacture that but hopefully um that is something that happens and and i and then look i think i think um you know our country is resilient our cities are resilient um, we've been through this before you know uh, uh, steve ross always says you know when things are bad people can never remember how they turn good and when things are good they never remember that they can turn bad and I think that really holds true. And I, I often think back to that in times like this. And um, I do think, you know, I train my brain to, to think that we are going to get past this. And, I, you know, I, I do think um, afterwards, people are going to really want to go out, are going to miss the social, you know, have missed the social interaction, or are going to want to go to sporting events, are going to want to go to the restaurants. Um, you know, the negative is, you know, depending on how long this time frame is, you know, what was the economic damage that occurred during the, whatever it is, 18 to 24 months? And, you know, does the consumer have the same purchasing power after vaccine, even though he or she may want to do those things, are they able to do? And same with businesses, you know, what's the, what's the business's balance sheet look like post-vaccine after burning through lots and lots of liquidity? I mean, I don't know. Anyone talks about these V's or whatever it is. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think it's going to it's going to take a while. So what does it mean to your business? I, I think it's just, it's it's everything we talked about. It's a deferral of, of a couple of new businesses on the develop uh, new opportunities on the development side. Um, but I think that there will be um, lots of opportunities for um well-capitalized, well-resourced um, entities like ourselves to uh, come in and either provide rescue capital or uh, have the opportunity to buy assets at significant discounts. But I think it's too early to, because nobody, nobody really knows what's going to happen yet. And we don't really know, you know, when the cure is going to be there. We don't know what the government's going to do. And it, so there's, some of it, you know, any some of the deals you can do now, you're you're gambling more than investing, and you just have to be a little careful in the short term. Um, but I do think cities will come back. Um, you know, people 
I remember after 9-11, everyone, everyone was, oh, no one's ever going to live in a city again, and no one's going to live in New York City, and no one's going to want to be in a high rise, and, you know, all that stuff. And I think people have short memories. Um, you know, people, uh, I, I think there is a return to normalcy as soon as, uh, as, soon as, as soon as it can be. It sounds like you believe that things will revert back to the trend line, if you will, but this particular reverting back, <clears throat> given that it's so connected or at least dependent upon the vaccine, may take uh, a long while to get there. So, I mean, I think if you looked at, you know, for underwriting purposes, if you looked at 19, right, 2019, you know, maybe we are there again in 22, 23, right? Yeah. So wherever you are headed in 19, you start that over in 22. So going back to our conversation about delayed projects and you know and, and, and company overhead uh, carrying through, uh, that that's a long carry. There are probably not that many organizations, development companies, operating companies, that can survive at uh, 50 or 60 or 40 percent of their uh, 2019 volume without some radical changes. And even then, they may not be able to rationalize enough uh, and need infusion. So. You, um, I think you said you expect to see some opportunities in helping those companies kind of work through those issues and perhaps take over or buy a piece of them or somehow become uh, a part of their uh, uh, rescue. Right. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, there's always the, the famous uh, line, you know, never waste a, a good crisis. Um, if you think back to 08, 09, you know, we were able to tie up the land for Hudson Yards in, in the midst of that downturn. And, um, you know, I, I just think that the, it's going to spur other unique opportunities uh, to allow uh, zonings that they may not have uh, previously allowed in order to encourage economic development. Um, and I think that uh, land will trade uh, because it has to, uh, because people have to. And so that could lead to other opportunities. And, you know, hopefully, um, you know, our governments are back in a growth mindset and whether it's RFPs like Hudson Yards um, and, and things are done because uh, everybody's on board with uh, creating jobs and economic development opportunities. And if you if you kind of work your way into that cycle, um, that could really provide some unique uh, real estate opportunities for us. Yeah, I can imagine. In the last couple of downturns, the uh, early opportunities uh, were presenting themselves when there was not a whole lot of liquidity in the market, particularly not in the credit side of the business. So basically, early movers were those who had equity to move quickly into the market, take advantage of this dislocation, and capitalize upon that, including yourselves. Uh, do you expect the same thing this time, or do you think that the credit markets are going to be much more available to finance these kinds of acquisitions? I mean, the, the credit markets have bounced back depending on what type of borrower you are and what type of company, you know, and, and a lot of that had to do with uh, Federal Reserve and, and the lending facilities um, because it really would have seized up had they not come out with those with the programs that they did. <clears throat> so you don't have the real crisis. Um, you know, we almost had it with the mortgage rates and we did have it in a couple situations, but um, had the Fed not stepped in, every mortgage rate would have been out of business. Right. So that very quick um, you know, surgical strike at the mortgage rates immediately went away uh, once the Fed um, opened up. So I think you, I think that didn't happen. Um, I think that's good for the industry overall. Um, and I, and I and I don't think that there's an 
the immediate opportunity. I think I think people are sitting on the sidelines a little bit, just trying to figure out exactly how this is going to play itself out. I mean, it, it is unbelievable the differing views that you get. You know, watching we all watch more CNN and CNBC uh, combined in the last you know month in our entire lives. And uh, you know, you can watch in the morning and get one opinion, and in the afternoon get the exact opposite. So. I think, you know, I tried to take the best bits and pieces from each and ultimately you have to make your, your own, your own call. But I'm, I'm buying into your outlook, which is that over the next two, three, four months, or maybe two, three quarters, it may last that long, especially with the CNBS, just how long it takes for things to uh, become technically um, really defaulted. Uh, we will begin to see some cracks and uh, the longer it takes to come up with a vaccine, the, the, the heavier the burden of carry is on the companies and, and the players. Uh, and like every single hole. So eventually we'll see some opportunities begin to break out and eventually it's gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger depending on how long it takes to get to the vaccine. So I'm working off of your base scenario. So in that case, as that happens, do you expect that by the time those opportunities arrive, uh, it'll be an equity-only play, and uh, uh, do you think it's going to be a very busy world? It's going to be lots of bidders, because today the headline is there's a ton of equity ready to get deployed, just waiting for the opportunity. By the time we get there, will that Got a lost you there. Equity be there, and will that equity be I should be back any moment now. Can you hear me? All right, hear I got you. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Did you get the gist of my question? Yes, I did. So um, I, I think you're right. And, and actually, um, you know, if you think back to when we started our funds business, um, you know, we, I, I didn't really believe at the time that the world needed another opportunity fund. Um, there's plenty of smart people in our industry um, that have lots of capital, as you said, sitting on the sideline. Um, and you know, the buying opportunity, you know, for what, for them to just buy um, assets cheaper than they were before, that I think ultimately gets commoditized and, and you know, maybe there's a short-term window. <clears throat> what we tried to focus on to differentiate our funds business early on was um, really focusing on areas that the business plan involved true real real estate execution capabilities. And Really, that's using you know those four thousand people in property management and underwriting and construction and and infrastructure development, um, really to to create value in the process. And so, we are unlikely to be a successful bidder at an auction for a property that used to trade at hundred now is going to trade at seventy because somebody else is going to pay seventy five, um, and there's no real competitive advantage for us to buy. You know. It, what we where we will have a competitive advantage is a defaulted construction loan right and and so because a defaulted construction loan the buyer needs to know what to do tomorrow when there's you know 200 people that are working on the job looking for direction and often additional capital needed to finish and you know many of our many of the others in the funds management business don't really have the expertise to execute on those business plans and so in the last in in 2008 you know what we, we bought almost you know every half built building in the major urban market across the country and that really filled up that first fund 
And, you know, we are already um, talking to other developers um, in need of capital. And, you know, I think that's where we will shine once again. And that's where, as you said, you know, where all of our people are going to be doing, you know, when they're not building new buildings as much, they'll be working on, you know, other unique opportunities. But again, kind of our best resource, our greatest resource of the company are our people and the, and the real estate talent that we have much more so than the capital that we have. And so if there's deals that require that execution capability, we will stand out. And that's really, I think that that will be uh, the way that we take it, you know, capitalize on what's going on. The opportunity for you this time around isn't simply having money when no one else does, because you don't think that's going to be the case, at least not for the foreseeable future. It's plugging in an expertise hole with money, but not necessarily just about the money. Correct. Yeah, good. So let's kind of wrap it up a little bit, but I'm curious, what happened since COVID got, became a pandemic and we began to shut down, what surprised you about how events turned out? I mean, the, the biggest surprise to me is the duration of this. I mean, I, I, you know, when we all on March 13th, you know, left the city, I thought it was a week or two and, you know, we'd kind of all get back to business and, you know, it's just, it, it's remarkable to me um, how long we are, we are sidelined and, you know, with every week, you know, you start to, it, it sinks in, you know, the, the devastating impact on various parts of the economy that, you know, if you would have asked me on March 13th, there's no way I would have believed it was, it was going to take this long. So, um, you know, that is the negative. Um, there, there, look, I think, I think um, the government's, the Fed's response has been incredible. Um, you know, the programs that they put out have really kept this economy afloat and it's kept a lot of small businesses afloat. And, you know, I applaud them for those efforts. Um, so you're, you're seeing some unique things. You know, I have, I have three young kids and we talk every night about, you know, they don't realize how historic of a moment we're, we're sitting in right, right now because that this is the only moment they've seen, right? So you have to explain that, you know, we're going to be sitting back one day saying, hey, remember what happened in 2020, you know, when we were sitting, you know, at home for, for two, three months. And I mean, that is not a, a that is not a normal world. No. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I was surprised to, to learn that California now is going to be uh, shut down for, or at least LA is going to be shut down for three more months. So that, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I think, I think New York is going to be for a while too. Yeah. So if you look forward, what do you think will be surprising the world uh, in a month from today? I mean, the, the, the one surprise, you know, which, you know, gives me uh, a lot of optimism and hope is, you know, you do look at the economies abroad that are, you know, a month or so ahead of us. And I'm very surprised by the bounce back in consumer spending, uh, manufacturing capability, um, and people really back to work, you know, especially in, in the retail sector. Um, you know, I was talking, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bobby Taubman and, you know, his mall in Korea, and really they've had some great success, you know, as soon as they've reopened those malls. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 that is, that is, that, that gives me a lot of, you know, hope uh, that, that it, it's, it won't take as long to recover out of this. And, um, you know, I just hope in, in, in this society, you know, we can manage through the 
protocols and the new societal norms enough that people people adapt and follow the rules because I think I'm as effectively as it is. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know if this is going to be the surprise uh, I'm offering today or just uh, wishful thinking on my part, but I would love to be surprised that the even perhaps premature reopening of, of certain states or cities uh, will not have created a negative uh, uh, bounce back in, in cases, case discoveries and deaths, and that in fact we'll find uh, that uh, there is a, another way that in the future we can manage the spread of the pandemic that doesn't involve complete shutdown. That would be a very pleasant surprise. I, I'd be surprised if that happened, but it'll be a very pleasant surprise. I'd love to have. Right. Any parting words, Jeff? That's it. Um, it's it's good to talk to you. It's uh, we're in unique times, uh, but look, I do think I, I do think we will get through this. I know we're going to get through it. Um, you know, but I do think that we will bounce back and. Um, I go back to that adage, you know, when things are, are bad, you, you can't figure out how they're going to be good. And I really believe it because, you know, New York has is, is got a lot of resilience and uh, New Yorkers are tough. And uh, as a country, uh, you know, we've been through some pretty bad times and I think we will recover. And our industry has been a lot of um, kind of people getting together and working together. And that's not always the case amongst competitors. And it's, it's nice to see. And uh, I think we will bounce back. I, I agree. I uh, last night uh, pinned out a note to our team, just kind of staying in touch with with our folks. And uh, one of one of the themes was that this too shall pass, and uh, I don't think it's going to kill us. So it's going to make us stronger, and we should uh, obviously uh, save the moment in terms of, like you said, with your children. This is a historic uh, time. Learn from it and apply it, and for all of us to do our part to uh, help contain the pandemic and, <clears throat> and, and stay healthy and right. help, help us all rebuild our society and our economy. I mean, that is something we've, we've actually spent um, a, fa a fair amount of time during this period um, on the philanthropic side. You know, we, um, when, uh, when we closed our construction sites at Hudson Yards um, and our governor announced that New York City needed 140,000 extra hospital beds before we knew it, it wasn't going to be that bad. <clears throat> we went in and, and moved our construction crews and, and uh, we opened a new hospital in 10 days, uh, wow. 700, 700 beds. Um, and uh, it was really amazing. And, you know, we didn't have permits, approvals, contracts, nothing. You know, everybody went to work and it was just great to see everyone uh, working together. Uh, we opened we opened up a, uh, a food kitchen at Hudson Yards right across from Javits Center where they created a temporary hospital. And we fed uh, 60,000 meals to arts building. And it was really all uh, uh, volunteer chefs that were in the Hudson Yards restaurants before. And Jose Andres took the lead with his World Central Kitchen. So that was great. And, you know, we provided uh, frontline workers with hotel rooms, you know, that we donated. So it's it's nice, you know, to be able to, beyond just giving money to an organization to help to actually, again, you know, even in this way, utilize our expertise to really uh, help people. And, you know, it was, it was nice to kind of give back to the community. That's fantastic. You, you got chills going down my spine as you were describing the things you've done. Thank you, good on you. So, well, Jeff, uh, I really appreciate our friendship. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us and 
uh, I think that uh, your wisdom is uh, enlightening and inspiring. So look forward right. to having you back on the show in a few weeks and see how things change. And in the meantime, stay healthy and be well. And uh, uh, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you look great. Right. Same to you. Thank you. Take My care. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye, Jeff. Bye.